Well, good morning, Aletheia Church. Thank you for joining us online this morning. Um, if this is your first time catching a service, feel free to uh, just say hello in the chat. Uh, I, know, I know that we would love uh, to say hello to you uh, and reach out to you and maybe get to know you a little bit better. Uh, but here this morning, we are going to be starting a new series. Um, we planned it months ago. We've entitled the series Victory. And, um, you know, it, it seems kind of strange right now to be talking about victory uh, in the season we are in right now, does it not? I mean, if we turn on the news, most of the time uh, we are inundated with more and more and more bad news. As a matter of fact, I had to tell my wife this past week, please stop reading the news. I need, uh, I need you and I need uh, myself to be able to take a mental health break from just the overwhelming avalanche of bad news. Uh, we are currently, at least here in Gainesville, ordered to stay at home uh, with no real end in sight. And yet, should we be without hope? What does it mean to be the church in a time such as this? And what does it mean not to live uh, defeated in a season of suffering and difficulty? Hopefully over the course of the next three weeks, Pastor Daniel and myself uh, will unpack for you uh, three reasons why we can be filled with hope. That reason is because of the victory that we have in Jesus. Now more than ever is a time for us to center our hope, our affections, our worship, and our attention on Jesus. So here's the breakdown of what we're going to do over the course of the next three weeks, starting with our sermon this morning. Uh, we are going to look at how Jesus is victorious over temptation and how subsequently we find life and victory in him over temptation. Next week, we're going to see how Jesus is victorious over the world and over the culture and over the systems that we see in place and how subsequently we are victorious over the world. And then on Easter in two weeks, we're going to see how Jesus is victorious over death and how because of his life, death, burial, and resurrection, we are victorious over death in him. So let's start looking at our focus this morning, which is temptation. And I want to start by just posing a question to you at home. And I want you to really think through this and process through this question. When was the last time you were tempted to sin? was the last time you were really tempted to sin? What did it feel like? Maybe if you're like me, it was this morning. <laughs> you, you didn't want to get out of bed, you know, whatever it may be. Wh what sin were you tempted toward? Was it a new sin? Maybe it was a habitual sin that falls into a pattern of sin for you. And how did you respond to that temptation? Maybe you ran. Maybe you prayed. Maybe you were paralyzed and didn't know what to do. Maybe you reached out to a friend and asked them for help and asked them to pray for you. But let me ask you this. When you think about temptation in your life, and maybe even more specifically, when you think about sin that is habitual in your life, that you maybe have been in a pattern with over the course of maybe months or years, do you find that temptation hard to overcome? Maybe that 
temptation and that habitual sin leads you to feel broken. Maybe it leads you to feel helpless. Maybe it leads you to feel paralyzed and unable to do anything. And here's what I want to encourage us in this morning as we're going to look at a number of different texts and ultimately look at Jesus' own battle with temptation is that we can place our hope in Jesus because he overcame temptation for us. So here's what I hope to show us this morning. Uh, No matter how difficult temptation is, we have hope. And and here are four things that we're going to see this morning uh, during our time and looking in God's word. The first one is, I want to give us an understanding biblically of how temptation works. Then I'm going to move into talking about how Jesus relates to us in our temptation and how he can sympathize and empathize with us. And then I'm going to move into how Jesus is victorious over temptation. And lastly, I'm going to share with us how we can find victory over temptation in Jesus. So let's start with that first point uh, and, and, and really process through a few things that we're going to see here. But how does temptation work? So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it over to James chapter 1. All right, and let me read uh, these verses to you, starting in verse 12. James says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So I want to focus on about three things here, but specifically two key words uh, in in these verses, right? And that is the word lured and the word enticed, right? That word lured in the Greek means to draw away or to draw out. And that word enticed means to bait or to catch by bait. And it says that we are lured and we are enticed by what? By our own desire, right? It doesn't doesn't say that God entices us. It doesn't even say here that Satan himself entices us, although we'll see the role that Satan and his minions uh, and demons play in this whole process. But it says that we're enticed by our own desire. We need to understand this. Temptation is like bait on a hook, right? I don't know about you guys, but when I, I used to fish quite a bit, um, and, and what I learned over the years fishing, especially with my grandfather when I was younger, is that when you go fishing, certain baits work better than others uh, with different fish. And my grandfather would, when we would go fishing for bass or for per- perch in fresh water, uh, he would use night crawlers, which is a, a type of earthworm. And those night crawlers worked really, really well at catching the type of fish that we were trying to get. Now, we use lures and other things as well, but as far as live bait goes, that worked really well. And then I remember talking to my grandfather, I don't know, probably when I was about 13 or 14, and said, you know, I said, Papa, I, w- I want to go uh, catfishing. I've never done that before. I want to go catfishing. And so I showed up and I brought night worms, uh, night crawlers with me to go fishing. And he just kind of laughs at me and says, yeah, you don't use those to catch catfish, right? And he opened up his tackle and his, and his, his tackle box and when the bait that was in there. And when he pulls it out, he, pours, he, he brings out like cornmeal that is in dough. 
and he would mash it together so that it stuck together really good, and then he would bait that hook. And the moment we started casting that out, boom, catfish are, are getting uh, caught on the hook. And, and here's, here's what you see as a fisherman, right? Fish are enticed by certain types of bait. And we would bait our hooks with the type of bait that would lure them to bite the hook. Guys, in the same way, temptation is like bait on a hook, right? Satan baits a hook with whatever you desire or enticed by. That could be power, that could be money, that could be sex, that could be food. It could be any number of things. But he has one singular goal, and that is to get you to go after that bait and bite the hook. And if you look at verse 15 here in James chapter one, once you bite, here's what happens. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. But what we need to understand is that what temptation leads to in and of itself is that temptation in and of itself is not even necessarily the problem. It's the response to the temptation which ultimately brings forth death. And you may be sitting there thinking, like, what death? What, what kind of death? Like, what are, what are we talking about here? Guys, we're talking about death to relationships. We're talking about death of opportunities. We're talking about deaths to living towards God and honoring him. And ultimately, as the Bible says to us, spiritual death. What we must understand about temptation is that it is constantly around us but like the bait on a hook for fishing, it is designed to hook us to our death, right? Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verses uh, 8 and 9, that our, our enemy is always looking for an opportunity, that he's like a roaring lion prowling, waiting uh, to, to seize an opportunity. Let me read that to you. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Guys, this is not a game. Our very lives are at stake and we must take this battle, even against our own fleshly desires, seriously. Because there is an enemy attempting to use them to draw us to our very deaths. And so if this is the reality of temptation, if it is a life or death battle, how do we face this temptation then? It is clearly one, not going to be easy. But, I, but from here on out, I'm gonna say this. We battle temptation by not hunkering down, becoming stronger, coming up with religious rules that we can follow or things we can do. No, we face temptation by looking to Jesus. And I wanna start by doing this, right? And this was my second point that I said we were gonna make this morning. We need to understand how Jesus relates to us in our temptation. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter two. But did you know this? That although Jesus is God's son in the flesh, he was tempted just as you are and just as I am. Let me read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18 for us. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This is referring to Jesus. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted, right? The author of Hebrews says there that that Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest, that he made propitiation for our sin, meaning he appeased God. He satisfied God's wrath and anger towards us for our sin. And then it says there, moving later on in, in verse 17 and into verse 18, that he himself suffered when tempted and is able to help us when tempted. If you turn over then to Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, he goes on to say this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It says that he is able to sympathize. It says that Jesus was tempted just as we are in every way, yet was without sin. Guys, let let me just share this with you. Jesus knows your temptations. He knows your proclivity towards certain sins and what you might struggle with, right? The way that I might be uh, more tempted to respond and lash out in anger and others may not. The way others may be more uh, tempted towards particular sexual sins. The way others might be tempted towards gluttony. The way others might be tempted towards lying or uh, holding on to money and stealing, right? Jesus empathizes and sympathizes with us in all of these temptations. But it also says this, that he overcame temptation and that he sympathizes and helps us in our temptation. Now, I've been a pastor for going on uh, eight years now. And and one of the questions that I frequently get in regards to understanding Jesus's uh, sympathizing as a high priest with our temptation is this. How can Jesus possibly relate with me? He is God. How could God possibly relate with me, a broken, uh, finite human being? How could he possibly relate with me? And so I I have an analogy I wanna share with you. And again, let me just say this. Analogies are meant to help illustrate things, but they aren't always perfect. But this is the best I could come up with in helping us try to understand how Jesus could possibly sympathize with us. First, let me just say this. Jesus was fully man and fully God. Go read Philippians chapter two. You can catch verses about four through 11 to understand how Jesus, right, can empathize and sympathize with us as being a man. But let me share this analogy with you. My freshman year of high school, uh, I went out for the soccer team. Uh, It was the second year that I'd gone out for the JV team uh, at my high school. And uh, my uh, varsity soccer coach was famous for the first week of soccer tryouts being terrible. As a matter of fact, it was called Hell Week. Uh, around the school. Uh, The reason being is he didn't really cut people. His goal was to just run you till you gave up because he wanted to figure out who would give up. And so the very first day of tryouts my freshman year, uh, we ran somewhere by my estimation between 15 and 25 miles. I'm not entirely sure how much it is, but it was somewhere between that amount of running. And uh, I, I would say probably about three quarters of the way through the tryout that particular day, uh, I felt like I was physically done. I, I could not go any further and I wanted to give up. 
And, you know, I was basically running at this pace. I mean, I was barely moving. I probably could walk faster than I was jogging at that point as we were running uh, suicides around the track, which averaged out to be about six miles if I did my math correctly that day. And we had already run an eight mile run before that. And we still had more to do after this. And anyway, in my mind, I'm like, I, I cannot do this. I cannot go any further. I cannot do this. And I don't know about you guys, but when I'm facing habitual sin and difficult temptation, I often have that same mindset. I cannot withstand this. I cannot stop, right, the wave that is coming right now. And there was one player on our team. He was a senior, and he was probably the best player on the team. Uh, He was done with this particular drill already uh, while I was doing it. And he came and was yelling at me, running with me, saying, you can do this. You can keep going. Keep running. Keep going. And I remember thinking to myself, like, what the heck? Like, first of all, why is this guy still running? But I remember looking at him and saying, you don't understand. I cannot finish. And he got in front of me and started running backwards in place in front of me as I'm running. And here's what he says to me. Trust me, I do know I already finished and so can you. Right, here's the point he was trying to get me to understand. Who understands how hard it is to finish right, the race, the, the tryout? He did. He had already finished it. Who, who understands the difficulty of temptation? The one who gives in to that temptation or the one who has endured it and come out the other side without having given in. See guys, Jesus faces the same temptations that we face, yet he withstands those temptations and endures without sinning. If anyone can relate to us, if anyone knows the difficulty and the magnitude of how hard it can be to withstand temptation and desire, it's Jesus. He knows the difficulties of my own temptations even more than I do because he fully withstood them. So here's what I want us to see in our text in Hebrews and in Matthew later on. Jesus was tempted. Jesus overcomes temptation and withstands it. Jesus forgives those who give in to temptation. And Jesus promises to help those who ask for help during temptation. So let me show you guys how Jesus both faced temptation because that's what the author of Hebrews says he did. Let me show you how Jesus both uh, went through temptation but then was victorious over that temptation. Let's go to our original text in Matthew chapter four. Let me read the first two verses for you at first. Matthew says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So Jesus is led by the spirit into the wilderness. And if you know anything about the timeline in Matthew's gospel, right, what happens right before this is Jesus is baptized by John. And it's this beautiful moment, right? Jesus is baptized by John. His public ministry is beginning. Uh, John confirms that Jesus is the long awaited Messiah who has come. And as he comes up from the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove and the, the heavens open up. And God, the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, right? So you see, this beautiful moment for Jesus. And then immediately, boom, he heads into battle. Immediately, right? He heads into the wilderness. And it says that he fasts for 40 days 
and 40 nights, right? He's hungry and alone. And I don't know about you guys, but fasting for 40 days and 40 nights is not a recipe for strength and endurance in the face of temptation and sin, at least in my opinion. I used to have a seminary professor when I took a spiritual warfare class who would say, guys, Satan's number one goal in temptation is to get you hungry, isolated, and tired. That's what he wants. He wants to get you hungry, isolated, and tired. And yet, if you look at Jesus's response to three separate temptations, he's gonna withstand all of them. And I'm just gonna make a note here. Jesus likely experienced more than three temptations over the course of these 40 days. These are just the three that are recorded here in Matthew's gospel. So look at the first temptation with me. And the tempter came, that's Satan, and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan shows up, right? Here Jesus is hungry, isolated, and tired. And Satan shows up and is like, dude, man, just eat, you know? Like, just eat. If you're really the son of God, just turn these stones into bread. You're hungry, man, go for it. Now let's start by saying this. Jesus could have done this. Jesus could have looked at that stone and said, boom, become bread. Uh, he could have made it a filet mignon if he wanted. But he says, no, right? He is choosing to abstain, right? So that he might be able to relate with us and sympathize with us. And I want you to notice what Satan does here, right? It's crafty. It's the same, similar to what he does in Genesis chapter three in talking with Eve. Satan is going to attack Jesus's identity and God's uh, sovereignty and goodness, right? If you were really God's son, right? What's he attacking there? Identity. Are you really God's son? Are you, are you sure? Prove it to me. If you were really God's son, you'd have no problem doing this. Right? Remember in Genesis chapter three, what does he say to Eve? Did God really say, attacking God's identity, attacking God's goodness, attacking God's love and our identity in him? See, Satan, whenever he tempts us, he wants us to question our identity and whether God really loves us or not. Is God really good? Does he really, he wants Jesus to question, does the father really love me? Or is he gonna let me starve and die out here in the wilderness? Did God design my body to be able to handle this or not? Does God really care for me or is he gonna let me die here in the wilderness after I've been baptized? Right, and here's Jesus's response. I want you to notice this, right? Jesus responds with what? Scripture, right? He quotes Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right, here's Jesus's response. I'm God's son and I need him more than I need food. And I'm gonna place my trust in what he has promised me, not in what my body is telling me I need right now. Guys, Jesus's first resistance to temptation shows him running back to his identity and what dad has taught him. Right, this, if you are a dad, this is what you want your kids to do every time they are faced with temptation. Right? You want your kid to say, nah, my dad's a good dad and I trust that he's told me not to do this and therefore he has my best interests at heart. I'm gonna run to him. 
And Jesus displays to us what Eve and Adam should have displayed in the Garden of Eden. No, we don't eat from that tree. God told us it wasn't good and that we would surely die. And we're gonna trust him because God has given us no reason not to trust him. And and Jesus here, right, in Matthew chapter four, displays to us, as Paul says in Romans, that he is the better Adam, right? And as he loves us well in this, he says, no, I'm gonna trust dad. I'm gonna trust my identity in dad. And so we see him overcome this first temptation. And so then Satan's gonna come back a second time. Starting in verse five, he says this, then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Right, so here in the second temptation, we see Satan actually attempting to quote scripture and twist it to get Jesus to do something. Right? He quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 through 12 here. And, he, and this is what he says to Jesus. Look, I brought you to the top of the temple. If you are really the son of God, so attacking that identity again, If you throw yourself off of here, you can't die and you will display to everyone that you are the Messiah because angels will show up and grab you out of the air. Prove to me that you are really the son of God. And Jesus doesn't try to argue with him. He doesn't even try to argue the scripture with Satan. He just says, you know, Satan, you are quoting scripture, but I know what scripture scripture ultimately says. Deuteronomy 6.16, right? He says this, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, he says this, Satan, you might be using scripture here, but you have used it incorrectly. You have used God's own words and twisted them the same way you did in Genesis 3. Guys, there are going to be times, sometimes even with people we know, where we ourselves or someone around us is going to attempt to be drawing or enticing us to sin and temptation, and they are gonna use scripture to justify it. And I know that when I say that, some of you are already like, oh, really? Like, I don't really, Pastor Kevin, I don't really believe you. Like, who would do that or whatever else? Let me give you an example. This is a famous one. Matthew 7, 1. They use Jesus' own words. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, if we were here in the audience, I would just say, who here has heard someone use that verse in reference to uh, trying to justify their own sin? Right? If you're telling somebody, hey, I think what you're doing is wrong. And they're like, oh, Matthew 7, 1, don't judge me. Right? People love to quote that verse out of context. Don't judge me. You're sinning if you judge me, right? Don't, don't judge me on my sin. Guys, let me, let me just share something with you. This is why having a proper biblical hermeneutic is important. Jesus isn't saying never to judge people here. If we understand the context of verses one through five, here's what Jesus is actually teaching uh, his disciples and the crowd at the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying to them, don't judge people unless you're dealing with your own sin first. That's what he's teaching on. 
He doesn't say never judge. No, he says this later on in Matthew. Get the plank out of your own eye before you try to get the splinter out of someone else's. Right? Jesus is sharing with us that if we're going to judge people, if we're going to call people to repentance, if we're going to try to call people to obedience, we must first be seeking that same obedience. We must understand that even the word of God can be used as a tool by some to entice us to disobey God's word. And this is why we must know God's word, be growing in God's word. As Paul says, renewing our minds daily in the promises of scripture and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So that when this happens, we are not putting God to the test the way that Jesus is encouraged and tempted to do here in Matthew chapter 4 that we can withstand and say, no, I know what my dad says. My dad is good, and I'm going to follow what he says, not what you say. I'm going to believe what God says is true, not what culture says is true. I'm going to trust God's word and not put him to the test. And then we see the third temptation of Jesus, starting in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Guys, this is like the test. (laughs) Satan takes him to the top of a mountain, shows him the kingdoms of the world and says, I will give you this kingdom and all that you see. All you gotta do is worship me. Here's the offer. No suffering, no cross, no pain, no betrayal. All you gotta do is worship me. That's it. I'm offering you the same thing the father is offering you just without the suffering and the cross and the death and and the burial involved. But guys, what is Satan really offering here? A counterfeit. He's offering a counterfeit good news. He's offering a counterfeit reward. He's offering a counterfeit gospel, a kingdom without suffering. See, here's what what you and I need to ultimately understand. You and I, as human beings, We're created by God and designed to worship. That's what we were designed to do. We were designed to be made in God's image and likeness and therefore bring honor and glory to him with the way we live our lives. And that is our act of spiritual worship. Did you know that sin is worship? It's worship of something. And Satan simply says, just bow down and worship me and I will give you everything your heart desires. That when you sin, you are worshiping and and therefore showing what you worship above God and have placed on the throne of your lives. Some of you are like, what do you mean by that? Let me give you an example. Any of you guys struggle with the sin of gossip? What What are you really saying when you gossip? You're showing that you worship self rather than God. 
and that by gossiping, you attempt to control the narrative of what others believe about you and believe about others and therefore put yourself above others. You worship self and you simply gossip because you worship self. You've given in to the counterfeit gospel and good news that you are the most important thing in the universe. What about those of you that that may have stolen or steal? And I'm not just talking about robbing a bank. For those of you guys that don't work hard and steal time from your employer, right? You might be displaying that you worship the God of money. I deserve this. I deserve this more than someone else. And so I'm gonna take it because I deserve this. See, we are designed for worship, worship of God. But when sin runs amok, we still worship. But as Paul says in Romans, we end up worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And so guys, when when we talk about temptation and overcoming sin and temptation, we say that this matters because it is a matter of worship. And as James shared with us in James chapter one, it is a matter of life and death. And we see that Jesus has offered a counterfeit gospel. Hey, I'll give you the same kingdom that God the Father is offering you. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Any of you guys been offered that level of temptation? I haven't. And yet look at Jesus' response. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus says, nope, again, I'm trusting dad, trusting my father. Be gone, I will worship him only. I love verse 11. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. He endured. He overcame the temptation that Adam and Eve could not overcome. And that he overcame the temptation that every man, woman, and child has experienced in their lifetime for thousands of years that we could not overcome, Jesus defeated. And so this moves us into our last point and what I want us to to see taking away from understanding Jesus's victory over this temptation is how can we find victory in temptation through Jesus? And I think we see three things. One, one, One is this, right? We need to understand the reality of temptation. Satan and our desires are at war oftentimes with what, with what God wants for us. And that Satan uses hunger, isolation, tiredness to pull us away and make us more susceptible to giving in to sin. He baits the hook with something we long for. We bite, but all that comes from biting that hook is death. We don't get fed. We don't get what is promised, right? If Jesus had given into that kingdom, he may very well have been given a kingdom, but that kingdom would have been finite because Jesus would have sinned and surrendered to Satan and death would have entered even through him. And yet Jesus overcomes and now he's given a crown that is imperishable and he rules and reigns at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, promising one day to return and his kingdom is eternal. Whatever your temptation is promising you, it is a temporal counterfeit gospel to the eternal glory of knowing and loving your God and worshiping him. 
And so we need to know and understand that fact that temptation is temporal, but worship and love of God is eternal. The second thing we need to, we need to know in understanding victory is this. Jesus really has overcome temptation for us. That Matthew 4 is not just some allegorical story. Jesus really defeated temptation here. And not only that, he has rescued us from our sin. Let me share with you Colossians chapter 2 and what Jesus, uh, what Paul says there to us in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This God gives victory in Jesus. He's defeated Satan. He's defeated sin. He's defeated temptation. As we're gonna see in a couple of weeks, he's even defeated death and the power that death holds over us, that he has disarmed the rulers and authorities. And not only that, put them to open shame in Christ. This is why Christians go so crazy at Easter time. And when we think about Good Friday and we think about all that Jesus went through, we go crazy because of this. Jesus has put them to open shame. He has truly rescued us from sin and temptation. And our identity is now in him. Look at Colossians 3.3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We must understand that before our lives were in Christ, we were orphans, lost, without a father, without a God who had adopted us. But now that we are in Christ, we have the same dad as Jesus does in Matthew chapter four. And we can know him and trust him because he has given us a new identity in Christ. And in that new identity, we're forgiven. We are loved. We are sons or daughters of God the father. Guys, you will not find any counterfeit gospel that can give you news like that because there is none. The last way that we can experience victory over temptation is that we can actually, on this side of having our identity in Christ, if we're really followers of Jesus, we can follow Jesus' example. Right, look at the things he does in Matthew 4, right? He knows the scriptures. He knows God's word. Guys, this means you need to be reading your Bible. You need to know your Bible. You need to be growing and understanding the scriptures. You need to be part of a local church that's teaching God's word and working through it so that you can understand it and grow. Look at what else Jesus does in Matthew 4. Right? He knows his identity and he rests in that identity. I'm, I'm gonna trust dad. I'm God's son. I'm gonna trust dad, right? That in the midst of temptation, he battles the temptation and the lies with his identity in God the Father. And then lastly, he knows this. And this is something we need to understand, guys. Satan eventually gives up 
when we don't give in. Look at what it says there. I'm going to read verse 11 to you again. And the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Guys, Satan is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. He is not all-powerful. He is not God. He cannot last forever. And neither does temptation. If we follow this pattern, we will see in our lives an ever-increasing pattern of overcoming temptation and ultimately putting sin to death in our lives. And guys, here's my belief about that is, is if we are overcoming temptation and putting sin to death, God's commands are for our good and we will experience more joy. The same way a loving father gives rules to his children, not because he hates them, but because he loves them and protects them. God gives rules for us to live by because he loves us and he knows what is best for us. And so here's, some, here's what I anticipate. Right? And I, I can't see it here this morning because there's no one in this room with me as we're recording this. But I've been a pastor long enough and I've been a follower of Jesus long enough to be like, yeah, but Pastor Kevin, you don't get it. Uh, you don't get how m- much I've given into temptation. You don't understand how difficult my temptation is. You don't understand the addictions I struggle with. It's, it's too much. I'm in too deep. I just want to share two words of encouragement for you. If you hear nothing else from this sermon, will you hear these two things if you feel like throwing in the towel and giving up? First one is this. It is never too late to repent. If you have breath in your lungs, it is never too late to repent. Life is a long battle. But God offers forgiveness to all who repent and place their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It is never too late for you to do that. Number two, It is never too late and it is never a wrong time to worship Jesus, ever. There's never never a time where it's inappropriate. There's never a time that has passed and it's too late for you to worship Jesus. Do you know this, guys? God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5. Jesus wants life for you. Satan is called the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Worship Jesus. He is our king who has overcome temptation and made a way for us. Made a way for us to be forgiven. Made a way for us to be made new. Start today by replacing your worship of things, your worship of creation over creator, and instead worship Jesus. And I promise you this, Jesus will change everything. I am living proof of Jesus radically transforming my life. And over the course of the last 15 years, I have seen Jesus give me new desires, new love, new hope, all rooted in my identity and it's being a son of God the Father because my life is hidden in Christ. And when Christ, who is my life, reappears, I will reappear with him 
in glory, just as Paul promises in Colossians. Replace your affections and your worship of the world with Jesus and everything will change. Will you bow your head and pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that even in the midst of not being able to gather as the people of God, we can still gather together online and worship you. God, thank you for my brothers and sisters who are watching this morning, and I pray that your word will bear much fruit in their lives this morning and would encourage them in this season to grow deeper bonds of love and worship toward you. Father, I ask that you would bind up the enemy and that as you taught us to pray that you would deliver us from temptation and that you would bind up Satan and the work that he's doing and keep us safe from his works. God, I ask that you would help us to endure and to overcome temptation, especially in the coming weeks when we are by definition going to be isolated because of the pandemic that is going across our country. Father, I pray that you would show us the way of escape that you promised to show us in 1 Corinthians that you always give us an opportunity to flee from temptation the same way that Joseph did with Potiphar's wife. God, I pray that you would give my brothers and sisters new desires and new hearts that seek to worship you and make much of you and not the things of this world. And lastly, God, I ask for this. Help us to see Jesus in all things. Help us to grow deeper in love and restore to us the joy of our salvation. Help us to experience the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ, afresh and anew. God, help us to know that his grace is sufficient for all of our sin, as you promise in Colossians that he has canceled out the debt. And then, Father, help us to know, and I mean really know, the depth of your love for us in Christ Jesus so that we might in turn worship you. God, help us to honor with you with our lives and thank you that you are victorious over temptation and that we subsequently are as well because we are in you. God, I love you. I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.